welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Home Efficiency. Hello, clean tech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community? Do it for a living? Make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Check out. You know, people may be hearing us disagreeing, but we're agreeing violently. Yes, um, and that's right. So, you know, Paul and I are That's not- how you know it's a good workshop. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember I ran a workshop on advanced hypersonics at Princeton. And one of the heads of a big company in that area walked to me and said, God, I couldn't live life like that. You guys were all screaming and yelling. I said, but, but we thought we had a lot of fun. We were talking about good stuff and it meant something. And we weren't stuck in the box like all these people who are trying to nod their heads and be peaceful and uninformative. I hope to God Kamala Harris appreciates this kind of dialogue. That's what we really need. Well, briefly on Kamala, because it's, it's an important topic. Um, you know, as I said, she had the best climate change plan. I, I, I referred to it in print and multiple times as statesmanlike. She had the most inclusive of other Democratic leaders' plans and legislation. She leaned into Warren's SEC pieces, et cetera. But, but, right now we're at a moment in time where we are have a wicked problem. You know, you know what a wicked problem is from, you know, social sciences, problems which have so much complexity, there are only least worst answers. And that's it, my it, life. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. That's what my whole life has been. That's my specialty. And, and so if we look at Kamala, she was the second most powerful law enforcement official in the world as the attorney general of, of California. And she had her own tough on, tough on crime period as every democratic leader of the nineties did. Biden has. As did Senator Specter. Everybody does. It was a moment in time. It was unfortunate. But right now we have this wicked problem in policing um, of militarization with the 1033 bill that Bill Clinton signed, which you know drops surplus material from the military down on police departments, along with lucrative maintenance contracts for the um, military industrial complex. And that in turn leads to training, which is skewed to militarized police forces and away from, um, you know, not away from, you know, more community policing. The second problem is that, you know, something that came out of uh, Columbus, Ohio, which was, was a specific type of stop where basically you did swarm policing of a specific area and you uh, took um, anybody for any reason, you stopped them and then were deeply suspicious and found pretexts to then search their cars or their backpacks 
so that you could then discover the weapons or the drugs or anything they had. Protectual traffic stops worked very well in very specific high crime neighborhoods for very specific intervention periods, reducing crime in those neighborhoods and reducing crime rates overall. But they spread across the United States. So protectual traffic stops have become a deep, a, a deeply problematic and broadly used approach, and they're a highly suspicious approach. Everybody you stop for any reason, the police, police officer has been trained to be deeply suspicious and treat them like criminals. And the third thing is just that white supremacist groups have been intentionally um, you know, trying to infiltrate law enforcement agencies. So we have this wicked problem. Now, the reason I say that I'm concerned about this is that Kamala Harris is the second most, uh, having the best climate plan is also the best positioned federal person to have the file of dealing with police reform in the Biden administration. And so I, I am a bit worried that climate change is going to have a reduced focus for at least the first year. It's the right thing to do, but I'm hoping they can do more than just one or two right things. Um, and on that note, I will pivot to agriculture and land use, another topic that you know excites me and excites you. So talk about agricultural and land use. Okay. So when we were looking at emissions, it depended on how you count. Electricity generation and industry were the bigger biggies. They were like 80%. But agriculture, I rate as almost as important as the other two. And in some ways, it's a bigger opportunity because politically, it might be easier to engage with. For transportation and electricity, we don't really need big new carbon taxes because efficiency alone, we can make money if we change the rules in the U.S. But with agriculture, my guess is that we really do need something like a 20 to $40 carbon fee to be recycled to give incentives for better practices in agriculture. So let me give a little background to why I, what got me going. There's a guy named Lovelock. Okay? And, and for some people, Lovelock is a famous guy. Other people, they never heard of him. He was one of the people who started the Gaia Hypothesis Yep. Uh, really deep into nature. He was worried about CO2 long before it was politically fashionable. And he was really groping for ways to solve this problem. Yeah. And by the um, way, he's a, a real crank about wind energy. He's just like off the charts wrong about wind yeah, energy. Yeah. yeah. He, he's not an engineer and he's certainly off the charts when it comes to nuclear, but he's into nature and biology. Yep. And at one point, he said, look at the terra preta practices, the biochar in the Andes. He said, this technology alone, better practices in agriculture could be enough to solve our entire climate problem without having to change those other sectors. Uh, they're wrong about that, but you know, let, me, okay. let, me, let me poke into this a bit um, to, to give context. So I've, I've gone deep on soil carbon capture um, chemistry as well. It, a lot of it comes down to, there's, there's kind of three or four levels to this. The first is that, you know, A, we've cut down about half the six trillion trees that used to exist on earth and they were carbon sinks and they're part of the carbon cycle. So we're running about 50% of the, you know, theoretically the lungs of the planet. Second, we've got a big chunk of the, of the 
land under agriculture to feed us. And agriculture is mostly high tillage as opposed to low tillage. So the high tillage and the you know trees being cut down leads to the mycelium network, the mushroom spore network that exists in all soil everywhere, uh, being cut and disrupted. And the mycelium network being disrupted is problematic because the primary mechanism for long-term sequestration of carbon molecules in soil is a protein called glomalin, which exists on mycelium roots. So high, high tillage agriculture cuts that, and it does two things. The first thing is it, it opens up the soil that's been, the CO2 that's just gone into the roots, and exposes it to decomposition, which turns it, you know, it means that, you know, um, you end up with the CO2 going back into the atmosphere more rapidly than otherwise. But the second thing is it's disrupting this long-term carbon sequestration process, which takes 100 to 150 years net per molecule of CO2. But it's the mechanism by which um, all of our fossil fuels were created. All that biomass got compressed geologically, and it was all this kind of stuff. Now, what Paul is talking about here for the folks on the phone is, you know, just the reality that we have to change our approaches to agriculture to reduce that problem. Um, we also have other things. Now he's talking about biochar. So let's talk about biochar because that's in addition to going to low tillage agriculture. Yeah. So, so go talk. Well, about let, let, let me come back a little bit with our area of agreement. I think we agree that there is room for great improvement in what the world is doing to encourage better agricultural practices and somewhat related stuff. Yep. This is a matter of life and death, and it's not a trivial area, just like electric power. You can't solve electric power with just one little silver bullet. It's a system, and we need systems thinking, integration, holism, and focusing on getting the bottom line right. So yes, I think we agree on more than, I didn't mean to say biochar is the solution to the whole no, no. world. It's I, I, that was just my introduction that I paid attention to what Lovelock said. And Lovelock was even talking about nature as an intelligent system, which really encompasses also the other things you're talking about. It's not in opposition to what you're talking about. Um, these things really are essential. I can say that in 2009, when we were doing climate legislation, Senator Specter was the one senator who was trying to tell these people, it's not just EPA, we have a Department of Agriculture. And it's not just environmental regulations, it's also how we manage agricultural systems. And he was a lonely voice before I even got there, but I was happy to support him. And in my year, the agricultural committees held several hearings on what the agricultural community could do to support climate change issues. And I was deeply disappointed that the turf loyalties in the Senate made it hard to build bridges between the agricultural people and the EPA kind of people. It, it's really important what agriculture could contribute it's doubly important if you consider the politics, because there are lots of states which are agricultural, which have Republican congressmen 
who want to make their constituents happy. If you fight the agricultural sector and treat cows as a threat to humanity and try to kill them all, you're going to discover you have a lot of enemies in those states. But if you really help the farmers, we, we spoke to some people, I forget the Lamar who was friendly to us in those days. If you work with the right people in ways that make agriculture contribute more and help the people of those states, you have better science, you have better efficiency, and you even have better politics. So yeah, the agricultural sector is critical, but I'm not proposing I got the silver bullet. You've looked into some very important issues. The oh, and mine is not a silver bullet either. Just, uh, I come down to um, low tillage agriculture is a lever that's easy to pull. Your suggestion of a 20 to $40 ton of CO2 is very good. I, I, one of my contacts is a guy named Mark Trexler, and he has specifically been dealing with uh, soil carbon capture offsets uh, professionally, globally, f since the 80s. Um, he's ri literally written the book on um, this subject. So it, it's a very important area. Um, but what it comes down to is you and I are agreeing fundamentally on a very interesting point. Agriculture is the sink. The, the land and the biological carbon uh, processes are the sink for excess CO2 in the atmosphere, not mechanical carbon capture. Well, okay, mechanical carbon capture, I think agriculture is worthy of more time because it's more promising. And, and in the agriculture area, it may be we need to build more world communication networks because you've been looking into some important things. I've been interacting in real time with people from Brazil who are doing things. Occasionally, I see what people in India are doing. And... We kind of need a better information flow to bring together and, and kind of integrate. They were talking about setting up an institute for regenerative agriculture. So, so there are really two issues. Getting a good information flow on what you can do with regenerative agriculture, plugging that into policy, but also having moderate rational incentives to fund some of the things that the farmers could do. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you talk about offsets, that's kind of in the same kind of neighborhood. Yeah. USDA came to the Congress and said, here's an idea. What they said was, we have mechanisms to measure carbon in the soil. And yes, you can't just go everywhere, but we have some new technologies. We have some sampling technologies. We got some management techniques. We have a conservation program already. And there are ways we could rationally expand incentives to encourage farmers to do what they can do. And we'll have an extension service that gives them choices of technology. We don't tell each farmer what to do, but we try to develop opportunities and options globally, lots of options all over the world. And then we'll have a flow of payments back to those farmers who achieve bottom line results with the carbon and actually probably with the water too. You need more than just your carbon. But the bottom line is conservation, agriculture, with incentives to preserve the world, modest incentives, 20 to $40 a ton of CO2, that's already a pretty good incentive for a lot of people who can do a lot of things. And it's not only the, the farm management, I should do due diligence, Barbara Boxer, 
Barbara Boxer is a friend of Harris, and Barbara Boxer could become a player in this. In an ideal world, we'd all be talking to Barbara Boxer, who would then talk to Kamal Harris. Uh, and I once did talk to Barbara Boxer long ago, not recently. And, and, and she knows that there are also um, biofuel producers who are cost-effective. And the $20 a ton for zero-carbon liquid fuel, I think the farms deserve it. I think some of the people Barbara knows also deserve it. Uh, proper incentives with a competitive market, there's a lot that can be done if the right people decide they want to do useful things. Oh, and I agree. And this is a conversation I've had a few times. Um, you know, this is one of the reasons I think that low tillage agriculture and other approaches like that are advantageous with the right incentives is that um, the growth of agribusiness has meant that there's a relatively small number of numbers driven manufacturers of food in the world. They are, yes. They, when the we Brazilians speak, talk about it a lot because Cargill is a big part of the economy in Brazil. So I've got an earful of this stuff. You're yeah, right. The point is when we say farmers, people imagine um, mom and dad and you know Annie Sue and little Billy Bob and the dogs and the pigs and stuff, but that's not the reality of agriculture globally. It's a relatively small portion of agriculture. The family farm has been diminishing for decades, which is part of the reason why, you know, 95% of the populace used to be engaged in agriculture or food processing uh, a century and a half ago, and now 3% are. Um, what that means is systemically that we have a relatively small number of very major corporations and mid-sized corporations and small corporations, and they all share a very common trait. They can be incentivized more easily and they will make more rational decisions if there are regulations which prevent something which have teeth and incentives which provide them a happy path, a bit of a carrot, a bit of a stick. They pay attention to those and they'll have staff who pay attention to those and they'll have efficiency and profit mark targets which are fairly rational in that context. So, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in cognitive science in the past year. I can safely say that individuals are irrational and corporations are soulless sociopaths, but they're rational. Um, so incentivizing corporations, a smaller number of agricultural corporations globally is actually quite achievable. We can actually achieve quite substantial transformations in land usage and forestry usage with the right regulatory and incentive mix. And we don't need to say how they do it or what they do. We help you to your point. We yep. need to help the right information flow among those organizations. But it's not like we have to change all consumers' consumption habits. Yes, yeah, so I agree with you strongly. Well, this is something I've learned. The more I've learned about how the agricultural sector really works, I've learned that when governments try to mess around with consumer diets, they tend to screw it up so badly, it's unbelievable. They don't know what they're doing. I, I was visiting Ireland in January of this year, and I got to see the blockade of the Irish farmers protesting the European Union, which is scary, because they want to be part of the European Union, but there are people who are climate idealists in the European Union who want to force people to be vegan and, and no cows. And, and if you have no cows, there are a lot of people who have cows who don't like that. 
And it's so stupid because we don't need them to get rid of their cows. That's just an ideological idea. It isn't the way you solve the climate change. And, and the people in Brazil are very emphatic. You want to kill all the cows, you've got a lot of Brazilians against you and not just the right wing. There are a lot of people in Brazil who get really upset if smart ass people in the wet, in the, with, in the industrial part of the world tell them to stop eating meat or kill all their cows. And, and it's, uh, it's a very serious issue. So people need freedom. Yeah, we don't want to interfere with their freedom or their diets, but we want the proper incentives to the big companies and to the small associations. We want them all to get good rational signals that include the effect on the soil. And even the shareholders, they don't want their land to turn to zero value. We don't want some IPO artists to come in there, rape the soil, make money for 10 years and depart, leaving the shareholders with nothing of value. In Brazil, that's a very big issue. A lot of investors don't want to put money into Brazilian agriculture because they're afraid that the guys taking their money are going to take the money and run when the soil starts losing its value. So we need the proper incentive systems so that the shareholders know what's garbage and what's real. Yeah, this is another place I was randomly knowledgeable because I spent a year living in Brazil and working in Brazil and had a Latin American role. And so I got to understand the politics better than the average schmo from not from Brazil. And so, yeah, there were significant challenges with Lula and Dilma's reigns, which, you know, led to all the corruption charges and stuff. But they did some really good work in terms of reducing the deforestation of the Amazon, specifically for short term cattle grazing. They would, you know, that was a problem in the 90s. And they fixed a lot of that. And now Bolsonaro is going back to those practices, which is a concern. Um, but I, I'd like to turn in the last kind of segment, I'd just like to spend a few minutes on geoengineering R&D, because this is an area where I've spoken to David Keith, um, who, you know, the uh, Harvard professor who's, you know, one of the leading uh, advocates for solar geoengineering. And I've, you know, looked at the Oxford principles and I've, you know, had arguments with people about this and I've published on this. So let's talk about geoengineering R&D. What are, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your concerns about it? Cause I have some too. So I think we should have an interesting conversation there. Okay. So there's some areas where we know what to do today. And there's some areas where we really have to do some pretty aggressive R&D of the kind that respects uncertainty. And when it comes to geoengineering technologies, the amount of real energy that we put into it has not been enough to do justice to the area. We have lots of little silver bullets, and some of them might be good. I spoke to Ed Teller's people who were into their little sulfate particle theory. Maybe that's the mainstream version today. Uh, And the mainstream people would say, well, we know how to do the sulfate particle thing, so let's work on that. But I think it's pretty clear that involves very serious risks. And there are many alternative ways to try to do geoengineering. So that was the kind of program I liked to run when I was in NSF. We make an announcement and say, here's the challenge. Here's some examples of ways you might try to do it. Give us your ideas for how we might go at it. Let's have some really intense peer review, fund some work, and after another five years, do another iteration. 
It's going to take a while for some of this geoengineering technology. There are different options. Among the options I like, okay, I, I have friends in the space community. And with low-cost access to space, which we should have, it's possible to do some experiments with things like mirrors that might be a little different from the sulfate particles. There are other particles we could use. I've seen people propose a special kind of geoengineering for the stratospheric ozone layer. And people might say, hey, that's a narrow focus. When I look at how Euxinia might poison every human on Earth, the first thing that would kill us all is this ozone hole suddenly getting larger again. And the radiation that comes when you lose your ozone layer, that is maybe the first killer of humans from the climate world. And if we have geoengineering technology that really addresses efficiently the chemistry of the stratospheric ozone layer, there are ideas, but they're not proven. It's a great area for research. There are many possibilities. We should have an open door and a competition. And anybody who pretends they know the answer now is a liar because there are lots of options and they all need more understanding. So That's me, my view. Yeah, let me pull a few things together for our audience. Um, so solar geoengineering the, and the mirrors in space <coughs> is designed to increase the albedo of the Earth's atmosphere, the reflectivity, so that incoming solar radiation, when it comes in, more of it gets reflected back to space. And what that does is it prevents the sunlight from hitting the Earth, warming the Earth, being re-emitted as infrared, and then being captured by greenhouse gases and re-emitted into the atmosphere to cause global warming. So turn off the tap in the, in the bathtub that's filling up as opposed to opening the drain, right? So it's the other way around. Now, um, secondarily, um, Paul talked about the ozone layer. Uh, interesting stuff there because... Um, the chemicals which were destroying the ozone layer um, in the 70s and 80s that were addressed by the Montreal Protocol signed by Ronald Reagan and uh, Brian Mulroney of Canada, um, among others, those chemicals were very high global warming potential. Um, they were vastly higher global warming potential than the chlorofluorocarbons were vastly higher glo global warming potential than CO2 or methane. Uh, and the stuff that replaced them, the hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs, are also tend to be very high global warming potential. So we fixed the ozone layer mostly. It's diminishing, thankfully. Um, but now we have to fix the HFCs follow-on, which is, <laughs> thankfully, HFCs are lower global warming potential than CFCs, but still they're really high. And so now we're looking at HFOs and low global warming potential hydrofluorocarbons. <laughs> But it's all tied together. Um, this, when we change the Earth's atmosphere, we change a lot of stuff. Now, the solar geoengineering stuff that Paul's talking about, the sulfate particles, are injecting to the stratosphere a limited number of particulate matters of specific chemical composition, which increases the albedo and reduces the insulation. The challenge is, what do they interact with chemically in the upper atmosphere and how it does it? Now, David Keith, who I spoke about earlier, he and another gentleman um, out of you know, Harvard and MIT are now funded by Gates, Bill Gates, among others, to actually do a small experiment. They're sending 
um, you know, uh, near space balloons up, they're going to release some particulate matter, they're going to tack back and forth through it to measure it. It's a very small thing. But the experiments are being done. Now, Paul, where I'd like to pivot to on this is, do you know the, have you read the Oxford principles on geoengineering? Not that one. Okay, so the fundamental problem I have with geoengineering is that from a f- engineering perspective, it's like, it's like accelerating into a skid. You're applying a positive feedback in many ways to a something. Instead of just us reducing the um, acceleration by stopping CO2, it's changing a third thing. And then what if we get it wrong? What if we go too far? That's the challenge. That's why we need more research. How much is enough? How can we do it? And the risks of going too far um, in this highly sophisticated, complex way by changing the chemistry of the Earth's atmosphere and the stratosphere is the risks are very high. The, The potential outcomes are very strong. So the Oxford principles on geoengineering deal with that and they call for Stuff which I think is sensible and reasonable. Um, global governance, a strongly risk-based approach, um, you know, a strong mechanisms for preventing billionaires um, from just doing it themselves. And, and you know that geoengineering experiments have been run by uh, very rich people just off the side of their desk with their own money, Paul? A guy in um, a very rich guy dumped massive amounts of iron filings in the uh, ocean off British Columbia, Canada, uh, a few years ago to experiment with geoengineering by ocean fertilization. Yeah, the ocean fertilization, the kind of geoengineering I'm interested in is what can you do to save us from dying of euxinia once you start getting H2S floating up into the atmosphere? I know. That's my priority. And there are other things that destroy the ozone. The stuff that makes them want to put iron in the ocean, that's that's a different department. It makes me nervous. Yeah. Because if half our problem is low oxygen regions coming in the oceans, but we got all this fertilizer already that's too much, putting more fertilizer in the ocean and more sulfates in the ocean. God help us. That, that's like feeding the, feeding the monster. Yeah. And, and we don't want to feed the monster, for God's sake. Yeah, no, my- By the way, uh, that's my fifth point. I think my feeling is for a comprehensive climate strategy, I mentioned five points. Yep. Number four was the geoengineering. Number five is better understanding really focused basic research on the chemistry of what the hell is going on in the ocean. And I think the iron stuff fits into that understanding what the hell's going on, because I think I'm right about euxinia, but you know, you might need research to be sure if, if the other guys are right that it's all acidity. Well, we should know that. And if it turns out that iron filings are going to kill us five years sooner, we should know that. So that's also an important topic. Yeah. Now, my, my problem with the geoengineering in terms of the um, reduce, increasing the albedo of the planet is my fundamental thing, and I've said this to Keith, and he kind of disagrees and kind of agrees, he doesn't want to agree, um, was that we'll use it as an excuse not to stop burning fossil fuels. Oh, we can keep the temperature down. 
by just by doing solar geoengineering. And so we don't need to stop using fossil fuels and emitting and using green and putting more greenhouse gas because we can control the temperature ourselves. The follow-on thread though is that increasing CO2 in the atmosphere means increasing acidification of the oceans. And it's acidification is the wrong term in some ways, but it's the common term. What it's doing is the CO2 sinks into the solution of the ocean and binds with um, calcium to create carbonic acid. But the calcium that it was there was used for shellfish. That's a primary thread, right? The shellfish are now in many parts of the world starting to see degraded shell thickness and durability because CO2 coming into the ocean is stealing the calcium that they need for that purpose. Um, And so my concern about solar geoengineering is that it prevents us from dealing with the root causes. It puts a Band-Aid on one symptom, but it doesn't do anything for the other symptoms. It it reminds me of when we invented fracking, you know, Um, and, and there is this terrible, terrible situation in technology policy when we can give people a new technology option which gives them a new frontier of possibilities and if they're intelligent it's guaranteed they'll be able to do better if they have these new options but in the real world of politics we have these biased selfish lunatic people out there you give them a life preserver and they'll use it to clobber whoever is sitting next to them and kill themselves and fracking is like that. Fracking was a great gift to the United States. And I look at what the hell we're doing with that gift. If we gave them a 200-year lifetime, a 1,000-year human lifetime, I think it's the same way. And that's why we're not going to give it to them. Because we can predict humans will misuse things that should be gifts because they're not rational. Now, is geoengineering one of those gifts? Is it the kind of thing where the geoengineering technology gives us security and freedom that really ought to be critical if we're doing things rationally. But will geoengineering be used as an excuse to be irrational and get rid of other things that we should have been doing? And that is a legitimate concern. It comes down to the politics. It comes down to who do we elect. I hope we will elect somebody who wouldn't turn geoengineering into another fracking. I hope to God we get people in power who understand that geoengineering is a lifesaver band-aid, worst case. We need to have that band-aid ready. We need to do the research to make it available. And we're not sitting there saying we're deploying it. We should be doing the research so that if things start getting bad, we can save our skin in that contingency. And that's how I would focus it. We can at least put a band-aid on one wound. Um, yeah. Have a supply of band-aids on hand before we take our trip. Yeah. Now, the uh, just politically, I, I will say that many senior members of the Trump administration love solar geoengineering, uh, which is indicative of, to me, of of risk. Of risk. Um, so I want to close by talking about machine learning because, heck, part of the reason we're talking is that. You know, the report that I wrote on machine learning globally and its approach to clean technologies, you wrote a forward for it where you talked about many of the same things we talked about in the past hour and a half. But you were a fundamental engineer in machine learning. So, and you think machine learning and data science and artificial intelligence 
are fundamental approaches to helping us solve the climate problem. So why don't you talk about, A, a bit of your background in machine learning, B, you know, what you thought of the report. Let's pitch the report and get more people to, to read it because I think it's very useful. Yeah. And C, why do you think machine learning is so critical to our solving the problems we've created for ourselves? Okay. It, it's always hard for me to be brief in talking about machine learning because I have been doing it for so many years and it's such a huge field. Oh, I, I know the report is only 150 pages and it's a skimming gloss. Yes. <laughs> I, but I can say in my forward, I put in some links. People can click and learn a hell of a lot more. My claim is that the deep learning revolution, the machine learning that's changing the whole world, is a direct traceable outcome of an award that I gave from NSF in 2008 to a guy named Jan LeCun and Andrew Ung who produced tangible results that they brought to Google that proved that machine learning and neural nets could do things which all the computer science experts knew were impossible. There is a video from Sergey Brin, which I linked to on my personal webpage. He gave a talk before the World Economic Forum. Sergey Brin said, God, all these experts told me that it would never work. And then came these guys to my office, basically Andrew Ong, and showed me, hey, this will do stuff. That hey, grant was what started it. But the what they demonstrated was just the tip of the iceberg. This is what we really worked on for 40 years. And it's changing the world more than climate. Well, let me just so, give a, some context here for, for people listening in. Um, so Lacun, um, in 2000, late 2018, shared the Turing Award, million-dollar Turing Award, with um, Bengio and Hinton. Um, and Lacun is actually, as far as I know, the uh, only one who isn't actually a Canadian. Um, but, yeah, this what Paul is talking about are the three people who are recognized, one of the three people who are most recognized globally as the leaders of the deep learning and machine learning revolution. So this is where this new internet stuff comes from. And I, I lead at least two lives, more than two. There's a climate life where I'm focused on trying to save humanity from Euxinia as best I can with helping other people to do the real work. But then there's also this future of the internet and there are many people who believe that the big changes in the internet, like this scary policing you mentioned, like autonomous weapons, like other things, they may threaten our survival sooner than climate change. And I believe that's true. And because I know that area better than I know climate, this is something we could talk about for hours. But let's just say, yeah, machine learning is important to the whole of life, not only climate change. But one good thing about machine learning is some of those people know you need to know some math and they need to know they know that things need to work. And this is why the machine learning community can be critical, because when you've got a whole bunch of kind of verbal policy people who believe you can solve problems by being holy and sanctimonious and putting in just mindless regulations, you're never going to solve a technical problem like climate change. But the internet is a much more complex problem than climate change. People who can't figure out Euxinia, God help you with intelligent systems coming down the pike, because that technology is changing and the policies are not keeping up with the really advanced technology that is coming down the pike. 
And it's being applied globally. Um, you know, Paul and I ended up talking because one of my, uh, you know, contacts, one of the people I'm doing um, an amazing set of interesting work around, um, you know, physical simulation of the built environment for COVID distancing and for um, reduction of mental health issues related to sociability, uh, David Clement, um, you know, collaborator with me on the report on many of the sections that were conceptual. David and Paul talked. You know, I think it's weekly in a think tank. David introduced me um, and you know, through a, another acquaintance of ours. But, you know, Paul agreed to do the foreword for the report. And I, I'd recommend people read it. Um, it's Machine Learning, a Transformative Clean Tech and Climate Technology. Uh, you can read more of Paul's thoughts and see the links he talks about there. And it's a global perspective on the researchers and corporations that are doing interesting things with deep learning technology to solve a myriad of different problems, small and large. Um, and it's useful for policymakers, it's useful for entrepreneurs, it's useful for investors, and anybody interested in investing in the technologies and helping incent the technologies that will help us survive and thrive and become even richer and have better lives in the coming decades. Paul, thank you so much for coming. Uh, everybody, I've been talking to Paul Werbos, PhD, co-director in the Center for Intelligent Optimization and Networks, um, original uh, innovator in machine learning, um, Brookings Fellow in the office of Senator Specter um, during the Obama-Biden administration, uh, where he was responsible for climate, energy, and space policy, um, and a program, former program director at the National Science Foundation. Paul, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great, and I'm looking forward to speaking to you more in the future. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.